This morning, let's turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and I'm going to start reading at verse 4. Philippians 4, verse 4. You know this scripture, you'll recognize it. Listen to what Paul says. Rejoice! I'll try that again. (laughs) I'll try it again. Rejoice! Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice! Come on. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the peace, sorry, and the God of peace will be with you. How many are familiar with it? We've heard this scripture, I'm sure, familiar with it. Philippians is an interesting epistle. It's a different kind of epistle that Paul wrote from other ones, like when he wrote Ephesians or Colossians or Corinthians. It's a different nature. This is not a letter about business, though there are exhortations. But what this is, it's actually a friendly letter between a loving apostle and a loving church. It is a friendly letter. The most likely occasion for why Paul even wrote this is because while he's in a Roman prison, the Philippian churches move with compassion for him and send him a love gift. And uh, he takes this occasion to write a letter of thank you. That's basically the motive, the reason, the occasion for this. It's saying thank you. And his thank you is in verses 10 to 20. He ends off the epistle as a thank you. Uh, so, but before he's going to say that thank you, he's going to give from friend to friend some final words of a heartfelt exhortation. Now when Paul writes this, he realizes that his friends there in Philippian, in Philippi are, are going through a little suffering Uh, from some sort of a current opposition. And Paul has heard that not in a pronounced way, but there are just some hints of internal unrest 
between members of the church at Philippi. And in both cases, the opposition from the world that's coming and a little bit of internal unrest within the congregation, there are two pressures that are coming against this church, one from outside, one a little bit from the inside. But in both cases, the way he will deal with that is he's going to tell them to have the proper frame of thinking. He's going to tell them about developing the proper mindset. You'll find it in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Follow his example. Get his mindset in you. Though he was rich, though he was God, yet he laid aside. He made himself of no reputation. That's powerful. He didn't just lose his reputation, folks. He made himself of no reputation. He didn't lose it. (laughs) He just made himself of no reputation. Get that mindset in you. So if you feel you're losing out because this world is attacking you and it's not okay and maybe you're you're losing out because of this world, it's alright. Have the mind same. I mean, Jesus wasn't afraid to lose his own reputation. Matter of fact, he made himself of no reputation. And when it comes to some of the internal strifes, in chapter 4, he would say, be of the same mind. We're in all of this together. Be of the same mind. So whether it's outside trouble or internal issues within the church, the mind has been troubled. And Paul is going to recommend how to solve that dilemma. Now, can I ask you a silly question here? Has anybody here ever suffered from anxiety? Anybody? Has anybody have burdens that crowd your mind? Anybody? Do you ever go through seasons of unsettledness in your heart and in your soul? Anybody here would confess to sleepless nights? Anybody here confess to tossing and turning? with worry have you ever had the time where you can't turn your mind off do outside pressures disturb your inner tranquility do relations with some people that you have leave you somewhat nervous at times anybody this is a message for anybody besides me there is a solution Come on. There's an old hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. In these verses in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, he's going to tell what Christians are supposed to do. This is how we're supposed to behave. And, in, and I want you to notice, it says, if you do this, you will experience the peace of God. Anybody interested? You will experience the peace of God. And then in verses 8 and, and 9, uh, after he tells them how to conduct themselves in this world, he says, and you will know the God of peace. I like that. There's the peace of God. 
because he is the God of peace. But it's all about thinking patterns. It's all about your mind. I want you to notice that in these verses, verses 4 to 7, there are three admonitions that Paul is going to give us. Admonition number one, rejoice. And in case you didn't get it, he says, and again, I say unto you, rejoice. Should we practice? Rejoice. <laughs> like you mean it, come on. Admonition number one is to rejoice. That's a decision. Because I have read the end of the book and we win. The end of the story is glory and death itself will not change the end of the story. We win. God trumps all. I know my future. I know it is secure. I know it is sure. I know it is steadfast. So world, do what you want. It's going to make no difference. In the end, I win. So ha! Rejoice. It's an attitude. Amen. This is an attitude we're supposed to be taking. This is the voice of faith. Rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. That's the first admonition. The second one is pray. Learn to commit every detail of your life to God in prayer. Every detail. Big or small, you pray. The third admonition is express thanksgiving. What are the three? Rejoice, pray, be thankful. Say it with me, come on. Rejoice, pray, and be thankful. Now these three things that he tells us are well rooted in the Old Testament. These three things describe a person who is in relationship with Jesus. If you know Jesus, you're a rejoicer. If you know Jesus, you are a prayer. And if you know Jesus, everybody can see how grateful you are. That describes the believer who has experienced the grace of God. These three things are are proof that we have experienced the grace of God. These things are written right into the DNA of the man or the woman who has been confronted with and changed by the grace and the mercy of God. I want you to listen to the heartbeat of the Old Testament book of Psalms. Because when Paul says rejoice, when he says pray, when he says be thankful, that is just the tune of the book of Psalms coming forward into the New Testament. I mean, let's just put our our ear on the chest of that Old Testament psalmist and listen to the heartbeat that's going on in there. When it comes to joy, when it comes to rejoicing, for example, Psalm 64, verse 10. The righteous will rejoice in the Lord, 
and take refuge in Him. All the upright in heart will glory in Him. Come on. Come on. Psalm 97 verse 12. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise His holy name. You can't listen or read the book of Psalms without hearing this heartbeat coming out. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. It's all through the book of Psalms. Rejoice in the Lord. Listen again to his heartbeat. Listen to the place of prayer. Psalm 61 verses 1 to 4. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I will call to you. I call even as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. I mean, they were praying people. Listen to Psalm 84, verses 1 to 4. How lovely! is your dwelling place. Lord Almighty, my soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young. A place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Hear the heartbeat of prayer? Can you hear the heartbeat of, of rejoicing? Can you hear the heartbeat of prayer? Well, let's listen again. Are they thankful in that book of Psalms? Psalm 95 and verse 2. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. You know this one better, Psalm 104. It says, Enter His gates with thanksgiving. And his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. And so Paul, who is a great student of the Old Testament, when he hears this heartbeat of joy, of prayer, and of thanksgiving, that's the heartbeat of a people who know their God. Amen? That's the heartbeat of people who know their God. And so he continually takes those three admonitions. It happens far more often in your New Testament than you realize. He takes those three things and he brings them forward to describe the Spirit-filled people of God. For instance, listen to how he finishes 1 Thessalonians. Almost like he finishes... Uh, Philippians about imitate me and these three things. Listen to chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 16 to 18. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. And everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do you hear those three things again? Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything, Give thanks. It's the same three things at the end of Philippians as in the end of 1 Thessalonians. Have you ever noticed when you read through Philippians, you do read through Philippians, right? You do read, right? You do pour yourselves into the Scriptures. Have you ever noticed when you read Philippians at the beginning, as he, opened, as he prays for them in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, listen to his prayer habit, Paul the Apostle. He says this to the Philippians, I thank 
my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. So when you pray for me, you pray with joy, right? When we pray for one another, it it fills us with joy. Amen? (laughs) Fills us with joy to pray one another. But Paul's whole attitude is, I thank God for what He's done in my life. I thank God for putting you into my life. It fills me with joy, and I just got to pray for you. I mean, rejoicing, praying, and thanking. That's the heartbeat that's there in Paul the Apostle. When you read the New Testament, that's what life in the Spirit is all about. Life in the Spirit is positively expressive, and it is active. I'll say it again. Life in the Spirit is not silence, it's expressive. (laughs) Oh, you're a hard bunch today. (laughs) Expressiveness. I let me tell you what it is not. Life in the Spirit is not long-faced. Life in the Spirit is not always given over to serious somberness. It's freedom, it's joyful, it's expressive, it's openness of heart, openness of a soul. This is good stuff, this is exciting, praise is good, and it's expressive, and the life of the Spirit is joy bubbles up that you can't sit and be silent. Life in the Spirit is rejoicing, it's praying, and it's gratitude. Come on. It is. I shouldn't tell stories like this. But go ahead. I remember some years ago I was going to speak at a Sunday night service somewhere. I won't tell you where. Uh, I didn't know what time they started. So I got there fairly early. I, was, I beat everybody there. I've learned that people don't, if the church is at 7, people don't come to 2 minutes to 7. I hate that. I want to get there and fellowship with the saints before service ever starts. I hate showing up on them just when church starts, and I hate leaving when it ends. I love people. I want to fellowship with the people. But I got there early. Two people were there in front of me and opened up the church. And you know what? They sat on the back row. The back row. I said, well, maybe they're ushers or something. You know, the back row. The back row. And then as I sat down on the back row, might as well. And uh, then other people eventually started coming in. And the first row they filled up was the back row. And I said, well, that's interesting. Next person coming in has to move up. Well, other people started coming in. And instead of moving up, they took chairs from the back and created another back row. I said, we come early to get the back seats here. 
And it was serious, and it was somberness, and everybody wanted seemed to stay away from the preacher as far as they could. That's what the appearance was. They didn't even know I was the guest speaker, because not only did I not know what time they started, they forgot they invited me. <laughs> so they had no idea who I was. I said, okay, this is interesting. Then the pastor comes in and says, who are you and what are you doing here? I says, well... I know you just changed from one pastor to another, but I'm on your schedule for tonight, so okay. Well, anyway, but I just could not get over the absolute somber, serious silence and stay as far away from each other as you possibly can. That's not church. That's not life in the Spirit. And if that reflects the Gospel... Who wants the gospel? Now that's a harsh statement, and I know that's a harsh statement. And of course we want the gospel. But if that's the image that is presented, that is such a negative image. I want to tell you something. If you know Jesus, if you've been filled with the Spirit, the right response to grace is joy. Amen. It's joy. We've got something to shout about. We've got something to be happy about. And let the screws loose. Come on. Let the screws loose. This is good news. It's good news. And not only is it good news, but it makes us praying people because we discover we have a Heavenly Father that's so concerned about me, He knows a number of hairs on my head. I don't even have that information about myself. But He does. He's so, and He wants me to take everything to Him in prayer. And what other response can we have but gratitude? Let me say it again. Life in the Spirit is not serious somberness. It's expressive joy. And that's the truth. It is expressive joy. The kingdom of God, it says, is not meat and drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Amen. A God who causes joy springing up in your soul is a God who gives you peace. Amen. Amen. I mean, back to the Thessalonians. When, when Paul went to the city of Thessalonica, listen to what he says in chapter 1, verse 5 of Thessalonians. He says, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but it came with power. It came with the Holy Spirit. It came with deep, deep conviction. He says, you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us, and you became imitators of the Lord, and you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given to you by the Holy Spirit. Hey, receiving the gospel created persecution for them, but that didn't seem to matter for them because in the reception of the gospel, something happened inside their souls and they became joyful people that could shout praises even in the midst of their difficulties of getting saved. Let's get this right, church. It's a good thing to get saved. 
It's a good thing to get filled with the Holy Ghost. And it's a good thing to screw, let the screws loose. Amen. It is. Who can describe this joy of the Lord? If I try to give you a biblical definition of the joy, what can I say? I can say there's no long, sad faces. There's smiles on the face. It's not being consumed with seriousness or silent somberness. The biblical truth is this. When you experience grace, you get an explosion of joy in your heart. Is that what the Bible teaches, yes or no? We get this explosion of joy on our heart. That's why Paul is going to exhort his people that whoever he writes to is exhort them to practice joy. Because no matter what your circumstance is, let me tell you something, there is no one and there is no thing that can take away your joy. Nothing. I read the end of the book, you win. God makes everything work together for good. You win. Can I tell the end of the story? Jesus is near. Jesus is coming. You are destined for resurrection. You are destined for glory. No matter what your place in the world, you win. And when Paul is telling these people to learn to rejoice in the Lord, may I remind you, he's sitting in a prison cell when he writes it. He is in a Roman prison. He has set the example. And he encourages these Philippians. And he gives them a command. Stir yourself in joy. Paul's a testimony to his own words. That's why he can say, imitate me. If anybody has a reason not to be joyful, I guess I do. I'm sitting in a prison. But he says, as he writes Philippians, that word joy is all over. He says, when I pray with you, when I pray for you, I can't be there physically because I'm in prison. But when I think about you and when I pray for you, I experience joy. And he says, now, because I'm here in prison, some people are getting out there more preaching the gospel. Some to spite me and some to help me. He says, I don't care what their motive is. The gospel's going out. Hallelujah. And he's filled with joy at the fact that the gospel's going out. Wrong motive or right motive. At least it's going out. And it fills him with a sense of joy. And when he hears that those Philippians, oh, you're, you're concerned about me here in prison. Oh, the fact that you, that, touch, that touches my heart. That fills me with joy that you would think of me like that. And he says, you know, some little internal issues. I said, well, I, just get them straightened out because, man, that would really make me happy. That would really make me joyful. Oh, you heard Epaphroditus was sick. Oh, well, I got some good news for you. He's doing well. And I didn't want you to bur- I want you to know he's doing well. So you get out of that anxiety and you can have joy. He says, I yearn for your progress in the faith and your joy. I like that, Philippians 1.25. I yearn for your progress of joy. In other words, I want you to get happier. I want you to learn to live in the joy of the Lord. Now, because we have experienced grace, 
And because we have this joyful spirit of the Lord in our midst, even in the midst of our challenges, well, what do you do when challenges come to you that will threaten to take away your joy? What are you supposed to do? Two things. One thing, you are to make known your request to God. The second thing, you're to make known your gentleness to the world. Now, this world is trying to antagonize you. But instead of responding to the antagonism, you let your request be made known to God. And since nothing can take away your joy, you let your gentleness be made known to those who try to provoke you. It says in those verses, the Lord is near. Come on. The Lord is near. That's good news. The Lord is near. So when you know that the Lord is committed to you, then when things come against us, we don't have to cave in to anxiety because the Lord is near. That's good news. The Lord is near. So instead, we give ourselves to prayer. We give ourselves to thanksgiving. We give ourselves to peace. And we give ourselves to joy. Psalm 145.18, it says, The Lord is near to all who call on Him. The Lord is near. I'll say it again. The Lord is near. What's your life situation? i got good news. The Lord is near. What bad news did you get this week? I don't know, but I'll give you some good news. The Lord is near. Amen. He's near to all who call on Him in truth. He's ever present with us. And the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes back, that might be near as well. But even so, come Lord Jesus, because I tell you what, I'm, forgive me for the repetition, but I read the end of the book. You win. You win. God is good. What can the world possibly do to change the outcome that God has destined for you? What can the world possibly do? So knowing that the Lord is near, Paul gives advice. And he's going to actually borrow from Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus instructed us, be anxious for nothing. Be careful for nothing. You see... For those of us who know the Lord, life's good. No matter what we're going through, life's good. For those who don't know the Lord, all they have is the present. And they don't even know if they can hold on to that. And the future is so uncertain to them. But you and I are not in that position. For those who are anchored in the Lord, there's something we can do whenever our peace is threatened. Amen. There's something we can do. What are we to do? Number one, you are to take everything. That's what he's saying. Take everything, every detail, every concern, every circumstance of life, and turn it into prayer. Commit the whole thing to prayer. In other words, instead of worrying and fretting over something, learn the skill of taking it out, dealing with the Lord on it. 
and pray until you touch God. Amen. In everything, every detail, you, you learn to pray. Instead of fretting, instead of worrying, we are to live a spirit-filled life and we are to submit our case to God with joy, in prayer, and with thanksgiving. That's what he says in Philippians chapter 4 that we're to do. That shows utter dependence upon God and expresses our complete trust in Him. We are to pray and plead our case to God with an attitude of appreciation. The believer's life is one of a constant outpouring of gratitude towards God. You can't help but acknowledge your gratitude to God when you realize that there's not a thing you have from God that didn't come to you as a gift. And that's the truth. Everything you have is by God's gracious giftedness. Amen? And so we learn how to verbalize, not just feel, but we have to learn how to verbalize our gratitude. Some people have a difficult time learning to show appreciation to people. Well, we've got to learn to do it. We've got to learn to verbalize our gratitude and our thankfulness for each other in our lives one with another. I appreciate you. You bless me. And you've got to learn to verbalize it. Don't just feel it, but learn to articulate. Learn to verbalize it and say it. And we've got to verbalize our gratitude to God for His goodness and His generosity. That's the basic posture of New Testament people. That's the way we live. Now, if we do that, there's a powerful promise here. Listen to the promise. It says, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep or guard your heart and your mind. You see, there's a verse in Old Testament, Proverbs 4.23, where this admonition comes out like this. Keep your heart. Guard your heart with all diligence. Because out of it proceed all the issues of life. You speak what's in your heart. You think what's in your heart. You act according to the content of your heart. Out of your heart proceeds all the issues of your life. So since the heart is, is the pulse of your whole being, guard it, keep it. But I've got some good news. I've got something here that will guard my heart. The peace of God will guard it. That word Keep your heart, keep our hearts, keep our minds. If you know the Greek word there, it's a military word. It's the sentry, it's the soldier, it's the guard. He's going to keep you safe. He's going to be a shield between you and the trouble. Philippi was a military city. It was an outpost on the edge of the Roman Empire, so to speak, and the purpose was is to guard the peace of the Roman Empire. And he says, now, the peace of God will guard your heart and will guard your mind against threats that come to disturb that peace. This excelling peace will keep our heart, keep on our mind. When trouble assails us, the peace of God protects us. 
Come on. The peace of God protects us. When Paul says to keep your heart and keep your mind, it's interesting that he uses a unique word for mind there. And the rest of the New Testament, Paul is the only person who uses this Greek word. And every time he uses this Greek word for mind, this particular Greek word for mind, it's always thoughts that are under attack. Every time the word is used, when your thought life is under attack. When you are just tempted to have a sleepless night because you can't turn your mind off. That's the idea behind this word. It's when a war goes on in your mind at times. How many knows that your mind needs to be protected from racing at times? Your mind needs to be protected from tossing and turning out of control. Your mind needs to be protected from anxiety, from worry, from fear, from distress, or from anything that keeps it from trusting prayer. He says, I'm telling you how to get win the battle. Make the determination that you're going to be a people who learn to express your joy. Be vocal about it. Express your joy. Take every detail of your life and submit it in prayer to God. And show gratitude for the grace of God in your life. If you do these things, you'll experience a supernatural peace. This is not just some sort of self-help philosophy that you might go. You might have a a club... Depressions Anonymous or something. Or, I don't know what's out there, but you might have worry, worry People Anonymous. I don't know. This is not some sort of secular self-help thing to help you overcome this bad habit of worry or anxiety. This is the fruit of the gospel and the reality that there is a God who has intervened in our lives. Amen. And the Spirit of God really, really invades our hearts and really invades our souls. Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. Folks, Jesus has really intervened in our lives. His Spirit has really invaded us with the fruit of joy and peace. God really cares about every detail of your life, and He really will flood us with His presence in our souls, calming our minds. I got good news. Jesus is alive. Come on. He is alive. This peace is more than just a well-arranged heart. But this peace causes us to love one another. It broadens into our one another relationships. Because of the presence of the Lord, we can experience the protection of God's peace in the midst of conflict. That is an amazing thing. Let me tell you something. The world out there hasn't got a clue what we're talking about. The world out there hasn't got a clue what we're talking about. What a witness. What an evangelistic tool to demonstrate joy in the midst of opposition. Praising people. Worshipping people. 
thankful people. Life in the Spirit is expressive and life in the Spirit is active. And it is positive. Because we can have this peace, you and I can free our minds up to think about more important things. How many know that worrying is exhausting? How many know that fretting over something really makes you tired? Isn't that the truth? So if you've got the peace of God, you can put your mind to better use. Absolutely. That's why he would go on in verse number 8, once you've experienced the peace, put your mind to better use. You and I live in a fallen world. What are we supposed to allow ourselves to think about? How can you guard your mind from slipping back into anxiety? And how can you guard your mind so you keep showing gentleness to this world? Well, whatever is true, think on that. Whatever is true, think on that. To Paul, the truth is always God. It's always the gospel. When Paul uses the word that which is true, he's usually talking to what we talk about, as opposed to lies and deceit. Whatever is noble, put your mind to think on those types of things. That which is honorable, that which is worthy of respect, that which is worth spending your mental energies on. Think on those types of things. Whatever is right. Think about good behavior defined by God's character. Whatever is pure. Allow yourself to think on things that are not tainted with evil. Whatever is lovely. Those that you can have a friendly disposition towards. Think on such things. Whatever is admirable. Whatever is well spoken of generally by people. That's what you need to spend your mental energies on. On those types of things. You're to give our minds to those things that are excellent. That's moral qualities. Think on those things that are praiseworthy. That is more than just what gets approval from others, but it refers to the conduct that's in keeping with God's own righteousness. The fact is this, that there are both good and bad things in this world. But if they have excellence and if they have praiseworthy, put your mind that direction. The real difference here is this is not some self-help program. This is not self-sufficiency. This is the intervention of the Spirit of God in our lives. Amen. So Paul says, all you have to do to do this is imitate me. Copy me. He would say back in chapter 317... Imitate me. And then here in chapter 4, in verse 9, he's going to say it again. All you have to do is follow my example. Imitate me. Because Paul had proven the reality of this for himself. Remember where he's writing from when he says this. He is in a Roman imprisonment. The gospel that we confess is to be lived out and expressed before the world. So Paul says, follow my example. Well, what was that example? Well, in Philippians 1, he tells you. My example. In chapter 1, 22 to 28, he says, here's my example. I'm in prison. 
I don't know if I'm going to live or die. I'm going to go to trial. I don't know if they're going to give me a life sentence. They're going to let me go or they're going to take my head. I don't know. Now I know what I prefer. He says, you know, to depart and be with Christ is actually a better thing. I'm not afraid of losing my head. That's quite a statement, isn't it? To depart and be with Christ is far better. But to be for your sake, it's more needful that I stay so that I can help you grow in joy. To progress your faith and help you to grow in joy. So whether I live or whether I die, hallelujah, I rejoice. Now, follow my example, he says. Follow my example. In chapter 2, in verses 6 to 11, he showed the way of Christ. You know that though he was equal with God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation. Jesus was willing to become less than nothing for our sake, emptied himself. Gave up the privileges of heaven to take on human flesh, to experience life as we live. He made himself of no reputation. Now Paul, when he gives his own testimony in chapter 3 of Philippians, verses 4 to 14, he says, well, I'll just follow the example of Christ. If anybody's got something to boast about, I do. Child of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, Pharisee circumcised the eighth day. He said, I was zealous of the whole thing. I mean, I was going. Jesus made himself of no reputation. I'm ready to suffer the loss of all things. I can do the same. I can copy Jesus. I can lose my reputation because knowing him is better than any reputation. Oh, that I might be found in him. So Paul is saying to the Philippians, I copy Jesus. You copy me. Imitate me. Follow the example. Everything that Paul exhorts them to do, Paul has lived it out to them. They've seen it. They've heard it in letter and example. Now he says, put it into practice. There is joy in the midst of difficulties. A powerful truth. But we can experience the peace of of God. It protects and it guards our hearts. And you know why we can experience the peace of God? Because He is the God of peace. Hallelujah. And what a privilege and what an honor that you and I can simply, when this world challenges us, to take everything, everything, every detail, big or small, Take it to the Lord and submit the case to God in prayer. Get happy. Show gratitude. And this amazing peace of God, which is the fruit of the Spirit, guards our heart, knowing that the Lord is near. A peace that protects. Aren't you glad you know Jesus? Amen? Aren't you glad you know Jesus? Aren't you glad for the joy of the Lord? Aren't you glad 
for the peace that passes all understanding. This is the Spirit-filled life. Amen? Amen. Amen.